Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Scott Barry Kaufman, and we're talking about the science of transcendence and creativity. Scott is a humanistic psychologist who has taught at Columbia University, the University of Pennsylvania, New York University, and he writes the column Beautiful Minds for Scientific American and hosts the Psychology Podcast, which has received more than 10 million downloads. His writing has appeared in the Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, and in 2015, he was named one of 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world by Business Insider. We're talking with Scott today about some of the big questions in life. How do we help teenagers find meaning and purpose and figure out who they are, what they want, and where they're going in life? We're going to be talking about self-esteem and how to develop healthy self-esteem. We're going to talk about striving and how we can help our teenagers strive wisely toward the things that will fulfill them in life. We're also going to talk about crystallizing experiences or moments in life when everything seems to become clear. We're going to look at the science on daydreaming and we're going to see that it might not be as bad as we tend to think of it. In a lot of ways, daydreaming can be helpful and important factor in developing creativity. And we're going to see how the drive for exploration and openness to new experiences is perhaps the single most important factor predicting creative achievement. Finally, we'll see that rumination is actually a very important step in the process of moving through a traumatic situation and getting to a place of thriving. It's a jam-packed episode. We have so much to explore. And Scott Barry Kaufman is the perfect guest to accompany us on this journey. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've read a couple of your books and there's so much interesting stuff to talk about here. One that I just finished this morning is called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. It's a book about some big ideas. What made you think that you could write a book about something as massive as transcendence and how did you go about it? Yeah, I don't know if uh, the idea of transcendence interested me as much when I first got into it as the idea of self-actualization. Maslow's notions of self-actualization, Abraham Maslow, the humanistic psychology, really captivated me. But the more I dug into his writings, I realized that he didn't posit that his uh, the highest form of human motivation was self-actualization. He, the last couple of years of his life, started to posit that it was self-transcendence. Then that got me hooked on transcendence. It really got me interested in understanding how self-actualization is really just a bridge 
to higher states of consciousness and higher forms of contribution to society that, that can transcend our own ego and transcend our own self. So yeah, that, that took me on a journey, but I didn't really start off that way. What is transcendence? Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> Shoot right to the top. Shoot right to the top. Well, self, self-transcendence has many definitions. In fact, Maslow wrote an essay proposing there's like a hundred or so different definitions of ways people could think about it. In my book, I define it specifically in a very horizontal way, not, not a vertical way. So transcendence is an emergent phenomenon that, that arises from the integration of our whole self with the world in the service of realizing the good society. So a lot of the work of transcendence is really about connecting deeply with the world, not uh, transcending the world. You know, it's a... I see. Okay, yeah. You're transcending your own geographical limitations of your biological self, but you're really, in the most extreme way, becoming one with the universe. Mm. Yeah, you like that, Andy? I do. I love this diagram you, you have in your book. Uh, yeah, yeah, the continuum. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the continuum self world the unity continuum that's showing us as we move from flow mindfulness gratitude love awe uh, towards peak and mystical experiences there's sort of a, an increasing overlap between the self and the outside world yeah how would you put that into practice in an education system that is a good question it feels like it's completely absent from education or that it's like not even is something that we talk about or discuss, you know, where you like things that are concrete and we like to teach facts and things that can be memorized and transcendent experiences seem too like intangible or non-concrete or something that, that our education system really just doesn't go there. I know that's really unfortunate. Um, there's so much potential in these kids to, to uh, realize a really valuable form of actualization, you know, potentiality that they have something that's very creative in a way that that makes them feel alive and makes them feel like they're really existing in this universe. I mean, it's, it's really a shame. I mean, I don't think a lot of kids feel fully alive when they're in middle school. Something that you write about uh, in the book that I found interesting is the idea of learned helplessness. And this is something, you know, I learned about in psychology classes and everything like that. But you have in here the idea that the original researchers, Stephen Meyer and Martin Seligman, later on decided that they had the idea backward. What do you mean by that? Um, yeah, it's a good question. The original research, which was very seminal, by Martin Seligman and Meyer showed that a lot of rats and, and then they studied humans eventually when faced with the opportunity to experience trauma or experience a challenge um, after enough repeated exposures of the challenge they almost like forget about it like they didn't even they didn't leave when given the opportunity so they learned that they were helpless but the more modern day research tends to show that while that's maybe the case in rats and dogs mm. humans we have a higher order thought processes and cognitive maps that we tend to, uh, you know, you tend to find that that kind of feeling of helplessness is the automatic response in lots of other animals and, and, and in a lot of ways in humans too. But what we learn is that there's hope, you know, and we have to add on these additional layers of 
understanding, which we can in humans, which is, doesn't come so easily to turtles, for instance. You know, we have to learn hope. Yeah, turtles are not a very hopeful species uh, in terms of their their consciousness. Or maybe they are. We just don't know it. But anyway, um, yeah, so we really can shift our mindset in lots of ways that allows us to focus on other aspects of our lives and focus on things that allow us to escape an inner prison we may have created for ourselves. How do we learn hope? Not by picking up a textbook, you know, you live your life in a way that is aligned with your values. It's with your calling, your purpose, and you constantly think of lots of various different ways in which you can reach an outcome or a goal in your life. You know, there's, there's just tremendous research on hope in, in this, in the positive psychology field by Snyder and Lopez showing that hope doesn't just require the will to get there, like the energy or the motivation, even though that's a really important part of it, but also requires being able to figure out contingency plans, like if then uh, alternatives, you know, when I applied to undergraduate, I wanted to be a psychologist Yeah. Um, and I got rejected. Can you believe it? Oh, because here I am, I'm a psychologist now, you know, and it's like amazing uh, that I am a psychologist now because um, I uh, got rejected originally and I uh, didn't give up though. The point is I, I had hope that I would be a psychologist someday. And uh, I went in through the back door. I, I was an opera singer. I got accepted into the music program at the same school that rejected me for psychology. And then I then I switched to psychology once I was in there. <laughs> I know, I'm glad you like that. I'm glad you like that. You know, so we really, we really have to, we have to not give up. That's a big part of hope too. So many of us give up too quickly. You know, you get one rejection by a girl, right? You go to the club and you're done. You're like, I'm never going to talk to a girl ever again. That's not the way to live one's life. You talk about healthy self-esteem in the book. And I thought this was interesting because the flip side of that is narcissism and these two unhealthy attempts at regulating the need for self-esteem, grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism. What do those look like and where do those come from? And you know, I think a lot of parents find their feel that our teenagers are quite narcissistic and I'd never quite heard it broken down in terms of these two types of narcissism before. Well, people think of narcissism, they tend to think of the chest thumping, uh, grandiose narcissist who thinks they're the greatest and uh, must be seen as the greatest at all times are very loud. But there's another form of narcissism called vulnerable narcissism that's quieter. A lot of these individuals, you don't even know it. You don't even know their inner life is narcissistic until <laughs> maybe someday they'll it'll come out in some way where they they show that they're like, that person won the Nobel Prize. I should have won the Nobel Prize. And you're like, what? <laughs> you don't even do anything relating to Nobel Prizes. <laughs> 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 Yeah. So it's like really interesting because it's like they'll see it, you know, in their own head. And uh, and then in a less funny way, in a much less funny way and in a tragic way, I think a lot of school shooters have very high levels of vulnerable narcissism, not grandiose narcissism. Those are usually not the kids that are um, going around bragging and are loud. They're the ones that you find in their notebook. You know, they had all these secret fantasies of domination, of world domination. and of. So I think that we need to be on the lookout for some of these characteristics as well, not just the more uh, visible form. So how do you look for those? It's like you're kind of paying attention to comments like what you're talking about. I mean, a lot of it can come from uh, the, the child themselves. 
if we care to ask them. I think we need to have compassion about it. I don't think that once you put a label, I don't like putting labels on people and I don't want to put a label on a child, be like, oh, that child's a vulnerable narcissist, you know, that child's a grandiose narcissist. I didn't particularly like the labels that were put on me as a child, um, like uh, stupid, you know, retard, you know, all those sorts of things were not nice labels for me as, as a young kid in special ed. So we have to be very careful to view everyone as a whole person. I don't think we need to reduce people to specific characteristics, but if a child is struggling because they constantly feel like they're not uh, being recognized for their greatness that they think they have, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, you can, you can see the signs, you can see the signs, but, but help them through it, you know, and help them come up with a more healthy self-esteem, um, something that is more grounded in reality, first of all, but also grounded in inner stability, um, not so much the need to be recognized by others as great. Just don't become obsessed with being recognized by others as great. It's just uh, that, that, that's a pathway to, uh, to just not being happy in life, not just the damage they do to others, but also the damage they do to themselves especially vulnerable narcissists, those describing vulnerable narcissism because they're so focused on resentment and anxiety and shame um, when, they, when they could be so much more. Do you lean more on the grandiose or the vulnerable side, Andy? Well, I'm really, I mean, I guess the grandiose, it seems like what most people kind of already think of when we think about narcissistic, but the vulnerable is really interesting and more subtle kind of. And yeah, I think it's, a, it's really um, important to be aware of. I'm just wondering what. You dodged that question. You dodged that question. I said, Andy, where do you personally lean? Oh, more? me. Oh, 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 I see. <laughs> Oh, I think the grandiose. Yeah, I'm more grandiose. And that's good. It's better to be. Yeah, if you got to pick one of the two form of narcissism, be, be my my recommendation. Be, <laughs> be grandiose kind. What do you think that we can do as parents to help kids to develop more of the healthy self-esteem, especially if we notice some of the characteristics of vulnerable narcissism? I think that like the idea of self-esteem has a really bad connotation, especially like the self-esteem movement in the seventies and eighties where it's like, uh, yeah. tell, you know, anything you want to be, you know, like pump people up kind of, and yeah, you're great. Up. That's exactly, that's exactly right. But that, that's not a healthy self-esteem. That's actually narcissism. Narcissism. I I've shown and uh, well, I've written research, reading papers and articles on this, that healthy self-esteem is different from narciss narcissism. There are different concepts. Narcissism is about being the best um, or, um, but uh, so healthy self-esteem is just about being enough. And I don't think we instill in kids enough, a healthy self-esteem where they, they have a health self-worth. I think a lot of them feel like their self-worth is only based on their friends and uh, whether they like them or their school performance, you know? And, and so we actually actively instill an unhealthy self-esteem in, in these kids and then say self-esteem is not important, which I think is messed up. You know, I think we need to care about instilling a healthy self-esteem in kids. But it's easy to do and because we point to those things like, no, look, you're great. You just won the this and you, you got an A in that class and you're doing so well in this team that you're on and whatever. And, and like um, we're like by almost in trying to sort of help kids build self-esteem, we're basing it on things that are fragile or, or externally. That's right. That is exactly right. And so we got it backwards there. We should let kids know that they are enough as they are you know, in a lot of ways, maybe not always, but, uh, you know, in, in terms of their basic fundamental existence and right to be human. 
and also a sense of competency, a real sense of of healthy, uh, well, first of all, regulation of the narcissism, but also uh, that they can reach their goals in life, that they have what it takes to be authentically, uh, have authentic pride in what they're doing, not hubristic pride, not this kind of puffed up kind of pride, but a kind of, well, you know what, I, I, I realized this project, I, I, I'm showing growth. I, I can reasonably be proud of myself, but it doesn't mean I'm better than others. But yeah, so I think that uh, we could do a lot for uh, building a healthy self-esteem. It's interesting because I found that a connection between this and a concept you talked about later in the book, which is um, healthy selfishness. You talk about healthy self-love and healthy selfishness. What does that mean? And how could selfishness possibly be healthy? Aren't we supposed to be selfless? The healthy selfishness is, is in a lot of ways a response to the notion of toxic altruism or pathological altruism, where a lot of people seem to be obsessively helping others and not even really looking at what the other person's needs really are. You know, not really looking to see what if you're even really helping the person, a lot of it comes down to your own ego. Helping people makes you feel good about yourself. But healthy selfishness, you can really be uh, do a lot of things to take care of yourself. You do a lot of things to set proper boundaries and to, uh, for instance, meditate or uh, be aware of your own self, do inner work. Um, and it's uh, healthier than toxically uh, projecting all your insecurities onto others and in, in the guise of altruism. A lot of people do terrible things in the course of human history in the name of altruism. I hate to say it. Yeah. Everyone thinks they're on the right side of history. Right. You know? Yeah. Some of the most terrible things in the history of the world have been done yeah. in the name of saving yeah. others and helping. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's ego. You know, it's, there's an idea called communal narcissism, which is that uh, you're the greatest at helping others. It's kind of uh, overconfidence in your ability to help others as well. Toxic uh, pathological altruism. It's a, there's also this kind of idea of collective narcissism. And I, I think that's a problem too. There's a really interesting section of your book on striving. And you talk about how to, how to strive wisely. And you say, yeah, it's not enough to just have purpose. We need to be really conscious about what we're striving towards and how we're doing that. What does it mean to strive wisely? Maslow had a great quote, what's worth doing is not worth doing well. So I think it's really important to recognize that just reaching a goal or setting out a goal that is not enough. I mean, it's important to, to put some sort of thought into the, what is a good fit for you? What is a good, what is in line with your character strengths? What is in line with your deepest being, deepest being, your deepest existence? I don't know if this is too deep for, for teenagers, but um, <laughs> There's a lot of work that gets done before you even set out on your goal. And I don't think a lot of people put that thought into it. So how can we help uh, or make sure that our teenagers are striving wisely instead of just kind of pursuing whatever? <laughs> yeah. It's a big question. It's a big, big question. There's uh, psychologists distinguish between growth goals and status goals, for instance. A lot of teenagers have status goals. A lot of teenagers, their goals relate to things like power, money, popularity fame, 
all of these things, uh, social media likes, uh, you know, how many teenagers want to be a YouTube influencer? Yeah, a lot. Totally. Those goals in and of themselves are not growth oriented goals. And how do they relate to the person's own, the growth of the person's own individual self-actualization? So I think really helping the teenager like look at who they really want to grow and to be and to lead, lead from there, lead from growth. Don't lead from status. And that's a start. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but there's so much you can get into on a podcast. Retranscend, folks. Okay, one final question from this book is on the Theory Z worldview. What does that refer to? Yeah, so Theory Z is a worldview Maslow called it dichotomy transcendence. We're able to uh, to see at a broader level of human nature um, and have the wisdom to see that we're all connected in some way. And all lots of different things that are seeming opposites are actually part of a, a larger whole. At higher level, you know, male and female can be integrated. Uh, evil versus good can be integrated. Selfish, unselfish is not such an easy dichotomy as I as I alluded to earlier. You know, it's a, it's a higher level way of thinking, and also uh, it's a it's a motivation. It, it involves a motivation for transcendence, for for the flow state, peak experiences, for being one with nature, with the world, um, and being motivated by that those experiences, those transcendent experiences. So how can we facilitate or encourage more theory Z thinking in our kids? I mean, no one's ever asked me that question before. Uh, it's a great question. It's uh, it's, just, it's like no one's going to understand what that means. Like when you go to like school, like, hey, everyone, we're going to have more Z, theory Z thinking today. Um, but I like it. I like it. Let's bring it down to the we're very up here. We're up in the clouds right now. But bringing it down to just basics. It's if you're a teacher, encourage students to think outside of binaries that uh, are so prevalent. Maybe teenagers, even because of the way their brain is not developed yet, maybe they're even more prone to thinking in terms of binaries, thinking in terms of black and white, uh, thinking in terms of, well, that person's good, I'm bad, or I'm good, that person's bad, or, oh, that political group is bad because they're different than my political group. There's so much juvenile thinking among adults these days, quite frankly. The teenagers should teach the adults something. They're more evolved than the adults these days. Um, but uh, it's just ridiculous the kind of in group and uh, out group fighting we have right now and tribal thinking. I love that. Yeah, it's really positive. I think it's easy for all of us to get caught up in those kinds of us versus them, the good versus bad. It's a reminder to just looking for the unity, looking for the connection, looking for how those circles come together and overlap. Boom. Well, you should write a book, Theory Z Thinking for Teens. <laughs> hey, that'd be a great book. Yeah, I, I, would, I would endorse it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're doing it. Hey, we're here with Scott Barry Kaufman talking about the science of transcendence and creativity. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I would just argue that we should give kids time to daydream, like actual a period where uh, in class where they can ah. have a journal and dream. Why not? 
or doodle. I used to love doodling while the teacher was talking, just like that. Doing that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Creativity and openness experience are really uh, good friends with each other. The openness experience trait involves your ability to have imagination. It, it requires uh, your ability to be open to new ideas, be open to your own inner experience, your own full range of emotions, your aesthetics, well, not your aesthetics, but the aesthetics of the world, <laughs> like being open to the, the beauty of the world. If you're too open to your own aesthetics, that might be grandiose narcissism. <laughs> back to that narcissism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I am so beautiful. Look at me. <laughs> yeah, but, but beauty, uh, appreciation of beauty is part of the openness to experience construct and not just physical beauty, but you know, um, uh, uh, any form, any form, I, beauty and ideas. I'm a highly sensitive introvert and that doesn't excuse behaviors, right? Yeah. There are people who narcissists are very highly sensitive to criticism. Yes, that's true. But you can't just say, Oh, I'm just a highly sensitive soul. I'm just a highly sensitive soul. <laughs> no, you, you need to learn self-regulation abilities. You need to learn, you know, like toughen up, man. <laughs> We can't change the past, obviously. Like we can't change the traumas and the challenges we've experienced, and we often wish we could. The best way is to think more forward, thinking about it, and uh, have hope. Yeah, make the ruminations productive, uh, not intrusive. Uh, so whenever they intrusively pop up, have them journal about it. Have them write and and, and explicitly explore the meaning behind it. Explore how it can be productive. Have them do those exercises. I would say. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.